Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Jordi Freed. Jordi is head of partner marketing and strategy at Sony, where he works on their 360 reality audio product. A leader amongst the so-called immersive audio formats, 360 reality audio is a listening experience dramatically different from any other, including more traditional surround sound. The chief innovation is that the spatial audio effect is achieved through software, not hardware. As long as the playback service supports the format, as Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and others do, all the listener needs is a pair of headphones. Jordi is Exhibit A for Spotlight On's thesis that there are many varying ways for people to make a life in the creative fields, not just on stage, on screen, or on mic. He also makes the case that who you know matters as much or more than what. I've known Jordi for just over 10 years through multiple roles, and our work together only gets bigger and more interesting as our conversation reveals. Enjoy. Morning. How are you? How are you? Good. How are you? I love your recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was really like taking this, you know, fabric piece seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like so, the, the noise deadening uh, material there. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we actually have one of these closets. So this is our closet. <laughs> yeah. No, I have room. We could sell it. You know, yeah, I think it's a, a closet is also a home recording studio in New York. That's, that's yeah, fair. Ba- ba- basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, <laughs> before we jump in, uh, congratulations on uh, release day for the David Thank you. Bowie 360 content. Appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Very exciting. Yeah. yeah we made it. <laughs> we made it across the finish line. Yep. Um, we'll come back to that, though. Um, so where are you based? Based in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Okay. And you came there via Philadelphia? Came there via Philly. I've been in New York. What? This is my ninth year in New York. So you're almost almost a New Yorker. Yorker. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's your criteria? uh, My criteria is I own a car and I have to move it for street cleaning. So, (laughs) so I think I'm New Yorker enough and I've gotten many parking tickets. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a New Yorker. They've gotten my money. So yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. They've got a down payment on your soul. Um, yes. So for me, uh, I think of Philadelphia whenever I talk to a music person, you know, there's the obvious Philly soul connection, but um, it's also a great jazz town. Yeah. Um, and is that the lineage you sort of grew up in? Like, can you talk a little bit about your Philadelphia and your Philadelphia music? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, definitely jazz. And it really stemmed from my dad. Um, he was always... So, so just to actually clarify, my dad's an audiophile. So I grew up with my father always into music, but also high quality music. So... 
you know, years of buying essay CDs and, you know, getting a DVD player before anyone else and, you know, surround sound system. And when I was a kid taking me to like, you know, audio equipment stores, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Just like dragging me. So, and, and ironically, this is kind of a tie into my career. Um, I don't think I've ever met someone so passionate about Sony products (laughs) as much as my dad and Sony audio products in particular. And it's kind of full circle. So we'll, we'll get to that, but I guess back to your, so he had like the ES line of stuff back in the day, like the, yeah, everything. I I mean, they're literally, you know, you turn left and right and pretty much every consumer electronic we had was like a Sony product, right? Dream machine, you know, Walkman CD player, uh, you know, head like everything, SACB, (laughs) DVD, like it was just all over. Um, but again, that's a, we'll we'll get to that, but I guess back to the music piece. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I started an instrument like, you know, a lot of kids do and chose saxophone. And the first album I ever heard, like of jazz, was a Cannibal Adderley album. And I kind of got hooked. And my dad was really into jazz. And I basically got immersed into jazz as a kid back in middle school, like fifth grade, sixth grade. And, mm-hmm. you know, he would take me to jazz clubs, you know, in Philly where you could sit in. And I was this like 11 year old as a novelty kind of like sitting in, you know, I mean, there were a couple of jazz houses at the time, like one in West Philly that this was before um, smoking indoors was illegal. And it was, I mean, my my horn would smell like smoke for days (laughs) afterwards, my clothes, you know, I mean, um, and yeah, so he, just got me hooked on jazz and and then I got hooked on jazz and you know I was really really serious about jazz for many years I mean it it defined a big chunk of my life at the time and um I mean I had my own band we would play silent auctions and you know banquet gigs and you know all like community uh, arts festivals and all that kind of stuff. Right. So jazz and music. I mean, I, I was like really locked in as a kid. And I, I I mean, I would read downbeat jazz times. I, you know, my dad would take me to see all the greats. I mean, first concert I ever saw, um, first music show I ever saw true concert I ever saw was Sonny Rollins. That's incredible, man. So, so, and that's a funny story too. Um, I was a kid. I was what, like, you know, sixth, seventh grade. Right. Um, and it was at the Kimmel center in Philly and the Kimmel center has these two box seats, you know, on the stage, left stage, left stage, right. At the end of the show, as you know, Sonny was walking off, you know, the artist passes one of the box seats. No one was sitting in it. And my dad's like, go run up, ask for an autograph as he's walking off. And I did, I, I'm like, Mr. Rollins, will you please sign my program? And he said, come on back. So I hopped the railing and I 
literally was just one-on-one with Sonny as like a, what, sixth or seventh grader. That was life-changing, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> as like a young, you know, fresh jazz saxophonist that, you know, has no idea <laughs> about the world or anything, but listens to these albums and hears its person play in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I was completely hooked on jazz as a, uh, a student and, and one interesting note too, and then I'll shut up. No, no. Um, so the high school I went to is actually a really interesting high school in suburban Philadelphia called Cheltenham high school. Um, and there was a graduate. So in the sixties, a lot of people came from that high school in, in the world. So one graduating class was Reggie Jackson and Randy Brecker in the same graduating class. And then two years later was Michael Brecker and Benjamin Netanyahu. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in the sixties, this high school was like the hot thing, but I guess the point is the Brecker brothers came from this high school. Jeff Lorber came from this high school. Andy Snitzer came from this high school. All these, like, it's kind of a weird high school that had some jazz people. Was it a performing um, arts school or just, it just happened no, to be a thing? Yeah. Just happened to be a thing. I guess, you know, suburban Philadelphia, um, very, very diverse community of all backgrounds, right? Um, and I guess arts, you know, was valued at that time. Um, but yeah, so, so growing up as a, high schooler or in that township, you know, with folks like, you know, the Brecker brothers and other people coming from that place that I was walking the halls of um, was definitely influential and um, actually started corresponding with Michael Brecker via email when I was a high school student before he died Mm. Um, and know his sister and his kids and his family. Um, So, yeah. You're, you're talking to a jazz head, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, let's 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 talk about that for a minute. So yeah. your experience with Sonny Rollins and being a kid going to shows um, resonates with me, not not for not because of my experience, but um, when I was still living in New York. Um, so my, my son plays piano and I would take him to go to shows all the time at the Blue Note and we'd go see McCoy Tyner, you know, two or three times a year. And um the band always loved seeing a little kid in the audience. And he had very similar experiences where um, the band would come talk to him between sets or after the show, they'd, they'd say, Oh, come sit and talk. And um, you know, get, they, we have little doodles they made for him. Uh, Francisco Miller, the drummer especially was always really into talking to him. And um, I think, you know, that first of all, it's an incredibly like generous and warm thing for the players to do, but I've always thought about that in terms of it, it must really be for such a for for a form that was that went through a period where it was sort of endangered. Um, it's much more vibrant now, I think. But there was that period of time where it wasn't clear where jazz was going or if it was going to really be anything other than a very niche genre. Um, it had to be very exciting to see a young kid at those shows and a kid like not being dragged there, like, like a yeah. kid actually digging it, you know, <laughs> to- totally. It, yeah. It's special. And I mean, honestly, I guess as an art form, it's in a unique place to value that 
versus maybe other genres, to be honest, whereas like a pop star, no, no disrespect pop stars, but maybe it's a little bit different. It's more intimate. Um, there, there isn't necessarily scale for better or for worse right? yeah. um, in terms of like playing to 20,000 people, you know, for a jazz artist. So, um, and, and I guess like there's a history of lineage of, you know, generational, it's generational, right? Yeah, like there's right. always kind of the next generation and passing on legacy, keeping the art alive. Um, that makes jazz kind of unique, right? Yeah, that's actually interesting, too. I wonder, uh, you know, I'm not enough of a musicologist to really unpack that, but it, it strikes me as like it's it's a um, both the African-American lineage and the Jewish American lineage, both having like strong storytelling narrative based traditions and uh, uh, yeah, oral traditions, story community, yeah, very community. community. It's yeah. about community. And, you know, I'm, I'm part of that Jewish American lineage. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it makes sense. It, I think what you're saying makes total sense. Yeah. So, so it's also interesting to me that that sort of cannonball was the first guy that you latched onto or that you heard, because I, that's, that does, it also strikes me as like, as a kid, like big, bold, attract, like it's, it's, uh, it's not, um, it's not esoteric. Um, yep but also like a really good gateway drug because uh, you know, there's a sophistication, like you could, like cannonball is the way in takes you in a lot of interesting directions. Yeah. Um, could you speak to that at all? Like, where did you go from cannonball? And like, was he, is he your guy? Like, like what's your pantheon? He's not my guy now. Um, no disrespect. To cannonball. Yeah. I haven't listened to cannonball in a really long time. Um, he was a gateway drug. Honestly, right after that, it's a little bit fuzzy, but, for me, the big thing was, I think actually, no, uh, I, I do know where I went next. Um, Stan Getz and Coltrane, uh, mm. but particularly Stan Getz, like Getz and Gilberto. So yeah. my dad would, my dad really pushed me. <laughs> um, and I started doing these like talent shows, talent contests in, in the region where I would basically play the track like what the saxophonist was doing and I had a really great ear and I couldn't read very well at all uh, from a music perspective, cheap music perspective. Um, but I, I could literally hear something and almost play it back without much challenge. So I would hear these solos if it wasn't too technically complicated, you know, I wasn't doing like love Supreme, you know, but <laughs> like, you know, Gats and Gilberto, you know, Coltrane, my one and only love with Johnny Hartman. I, I would play the track, honestly. Um, and then from there, it just kind of like gradually, you know, grew into like Herbie and more modern stuff like, you know, Joshua Redman, Branford, uh, Marsalis. Um, yeah. And that kind of took me into to high school. Right. And then I really started getting into fusion, you know, like discovered Pat Metheny in high school through an album at the library <laughs> that I took out a CD, a CD at the library. Funny, That's right? So awesome. Um, yeah. Like, and other fusion, like steps ahead, you know, my high school had an EWI, believe it or not, you know, so <laughs> I was playing like EWI in, in high school. 
yeah, I, I really went down the, the rabbit hole. And yeah, I was doing other stuff too, but music was kind of always the core, right? Was it a, a path of self-exploration at that point? Or did you, did you have like, was there the person that was feeding you stuff? Um, it became self-exploration. Um, I struggled with uh, ADHD. Uh, I was a little bit lazy at times. Motivation wasn't disciplined before music. I actually did eight years of Kempo Karate where I got my black belt from age three to 11. And my dad realized that I'm a hyperactive kid. I am lazy at times. I need discipline. I had self-esteem issues and he, karate was kind of first way to channel that. Um, And then music became that. And I just so happened to have an ear and it centered me in a lot of ways. Uh, now he also pushed me too, but like, you know, for someone with ADHD and, you know, the potential to have gotten lost without the right kind of construction that really focused me. And it was something I understood and was passionate about. And I mean, honestly, without that, who knows where I'd be today? (laughs) Like I might've gotten lost, you know? Yeah, those are the years too, like fifth grade to eighth grade, like especially going into middle school. Like those are the years where we lose a lot of kids. Um, They're not babied the way they are in elementary school, and there's not like the big infrastructure a high school has. It's it's a tough, tough time, and it just sucks. That's like it's an awful age. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did your dad play? Was he a player, or was like was he a stage dad? Is that why he was pushing you? (laughs) He was a total stage dad. I mean, he would write like. I actually did press in like high school. You know, I did these benefit concerts where the whole community would come like benefit concert for, you know, when Michael Brecker died, uh, benefit for Crohn's colitis, you know, foundation, you know, which is another thing, part of my family history. And, you know, he would send out press releases and like all, <laughs> all this stuff. He, he was a total stage dad, you know, he, like when I was a kid too, um, you know, he, he would take me to nursing homes on like Sundays to, to play for the elderly. And, you know, his thing is, okay, it's a mitzvah, you know, good deed in, in Judaism. And, and it's also a way for you to practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was, uh, what was his day job? He's a structural engineer. So, you know, designing steel structures, support for bridges, um, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. He's always been an engineer um for his whole career yeah yeah so um you're playing through high school yeah uh what's that start to look like as you get to college age are you thinking like man i'm gonna play like what you know i i'm assuming we get to the point where there's a where there's the uh the crossroad where you say i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be the next uh stan gets therefore i'm going to pivot but how long did you carry the flame um, I dropped it. Okay. So I kept playing into college at the beginning, but so I, I, even though music was my core, I actually went through a phase in high school where I did really well. I was really focused on academics and, you know, I, I was the editor of the school newspaper, th- things like that. Right. Um, and I entered college as a poli sci major. <laughs> I was really into politics um, as well, just as a fascination, uh, interested in government. Um, And I think to your point in terms of that dropping point or pivot, 
um, I was always really, really fearful of, you know, for the way that I would be comfortable, right? Um, the unknown of becoming a performer and also um, self-discipline and also just really being honest with myself in terms of, yeah, I'm good for like my community, but I mean, what does it mean to be a professional musician? What does it mean to be a world-class professional musician? If I'm going to do this, I would want to play with, you know, Chikoria and this person, that one person, and that would never happen. I was just very real, like that's not going to happen. So, you know, and I think also too, I was getting burnt out. Um, I was like, again, had kind of a dad that really pushed me and and I don't say that negatively I needed it at that time and my father and I have a really great relationship and I'm grateful that he saw my deficiencies and channeled them right but I, I you know I was tired um so I entered as a poli sci major that lasted one semester <laughs> and, and this is where it gets really interesting. Um, you know, I didn't have, like, I, I was supported as a kid. You know, um, I'd love, I'd support, you know, middle to upper middle class. Um, you know, we weren't poor, we weren't wealthy, kind of just in the middle. But something dawned on me saying like, oh, well, I'm going to have to, pay for stuff in the future. I'm going to have to pay for college. I, I didn't go, I wanted to go to an Ivy league school. Um, I think I was like deferred or waitlisted at one or two. I ultimately decided to go to temple university. Really? I, I don't think I was ready to leave Philly at that time. And also I was thinking budget like, Oh, an education is an education. It's what I make of it afterwards. So at least for undergrad, I'm just, you know, I'm going to do this. It's a solid school. Um, but I realized like in my first semester of my freshman year, I was just going to class and doing extremely well. And I had a lot of free time. And I was like, I need to get my own job. I need to make my own money and I need to get ahead in my career. And I was going through some personal things within that first semester. And Later, towards the end of that calendar year, end of 2008, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start my career now. I want to work in the music business. I don't know what it means. I want to work in music. I don't want to be a performer. So I'm sure there's like a business side of this thing that we call music. And I want to lean into that and explore that. Um, so I started January 2009. Um I was second semester, freshman year, 18 years old. And that's when I started my career. Um, so I first started with kind of two things. Started on air. They put me on air at WRTI, like the jazz station in Philly, not a student station, like the jazz station. The GM of the station had seen me play. And it's like, you know, jazz, you can be on air. You don't need to like do data entry. So I did like two months of shadowing board ops and things like that. And then I did um, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. shifts, nice. also 12 to 6 a.m. shifts and sometimes 12 to 3 um, as an 18 year old. 
By the um, way, that is, then, that's like you made it. That's the pinnacle. Like <laughs> those are the jazz hours. That's when you want to be playing yeah, jazz. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all the people in nursing homes would call during that time. Prisoners. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and in parallel, something really interesting happened. I was Googling and researching all these companies that worked with some of my favorite artists. And I came across a couple companies, came across one company in Boston. It was an interesting story. I'll get to that later if we have time. And then I found one company that happened to be um, right outside of the city in a little town called Balakinwood, where my grandparents lived. And also I looked at the address and it was down the street from where my parents got married. Oh, wow. And so I sent them a cold email like, I know this jazz musician, that jazz musician, I've done this, that, blah, blah, blah. Emailed everyone in the firm, very small firm. Um, no one got back to me except for one person. <laughs> and they said, oh, just come on in. You know, we don't have an internship, but like come in, like, you know. So I took the train, like a regional rail, walked in a snowstorm to get to this place for an internship that didn't exist. <laughs> like January 15, 2009 five days before, I guess, Obama was inaugurated. And I was like, I want to work for you guys. It, this firm, Deal Media, represented Blue Note Records for 20 years and a bunch of other very well-known jazz musicians. And for me at the time, that was creme de la creme. And it was supposed to be a summer internship, right? Uh, and this uh, was January. And I said, well, I want to start now to prepare for the summer. So I started February 27, 2009, wow. and I stayed there for almost five years from that wow. day. And I basically worked there full-time and went to school full-time for my undergrad as a publicist. So when you and I were communicating years ago, like back in 2011, I was still an undergrad. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. I had no yeah. idea. It's, it's just, uh, I'm I, just doing yeah. the math now on, on it all. That's incredible. That's yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So, Damn and overachiever. I, <laughs> no, I, I felt like I needed to because I didn't have family help. You know, I, I felt like I needed to. And um, and I, I did get a little bit lucky because, you know, the firm at the time uh, stopped consulting Blue Note Records based on the EMI acquisition. And, you know, they were kind of going through their next phase after 20 years of working with Blue Note, um, which obviously, you know, financially... I'm sure was a big piece at the time. I mean, the firm's still running and doing great now. I'm still, you know, I keep in touch with uh, the owner, my old boss. Um, three publicists that had been there for like 10 to 20 years each, they all left within a year of my coming as an intern for personal reasons, right? It was a tumultuous time, still 2009, recession, all of that. And then um, the owner took a second job running a festival in Portland, Oregon. So he was commuting back and forth. And I was kind of the last guy standing. <laughs> wow. Um, and ironically, as a, you know, editor of school paper and someone who was really comfortable, you know, talking to people and writing and performing, if you will. And I say that with quotes, um, being a publicist was really natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. sure. For that skill set and my personality. And it, it just... Um, Within a semester, I shifted to become a comms major. <laughs> yeah. So I got my degree in communications while I was working as a publicist. Mm. All right. So um, 
there's probably about, I don't know, five or eight years that, um, that will lead us up until the Sony role. And, but I want to sort of condense them in the form of the question of, we got you from the creative to the business. How did you get from the comms part of the business to the true business part of the business? Like what, what's that evolution for you? And what was the, um, what was the attraction in that? Because I would imagine from what you're saying, you probably could have had a really successful career as a publicist or, or solely in marketing. Like what's that evolution and what was attractive to you in that? It's a great question. And I know exactly the answer um, because I can pinpoint it towards the latter part of my time at that firm. um, PR was becoming more challenging with digital transformation outlets, obviously going away, things consolidating online. And I was really interested in impact, right? Like, you know, for certain big hits as a publicist at the time, an NPR, all things considered, review, that would drive sales, right? I was interested in correlation of my work to impact and measurement and delivering value to who I was working with. And that was becoming increasingly challenging at that time as a traditional publicist. So I was viewing comms as kind of more a piece of broader marketing from a direct-to-consumer perspective. And it basically led me to marketing is something that, you know, at the end of the day, as a marketer, there are elements of performance marketing, but you're still telling a story to drive that performance. So my roots in comms really serves me even to this day to tell stories, even in developing business partnerships, right? Um, And in parallel, um, through relationships and, you know, um, people that I got to know, Uh, I came on to Blue Note uh, Entertainment Group as director of marketing and publicity, my first marketing role, true marketing role for an organization that, you know, is is an actual consumer facing brand, well known. Um, Yeah, I still had my PR hat too, but I was thrown in on the marketing side and I wanted it. And I, I basically got my marketing chops at Blue Note, Um, but through a series of events it just kind of snowballed into this weird or very not weird but strategic fusion of marketing business development and comms kind of combined into one and how they all kind of relate to each other right um part of that was i did leave blue note to work outside of music for a period of time at gray advertising uh, I was doing PR for the National Park Service, Canon, big brands, big companies, and I was on an integrated marketing team. And that was the first time I really saw the power of, you know, integrated marketing campaigns at work and where partnerships come into play. Um, and I ultimately didn't stay there that long, but I decided to go back to Blue Note because I had a vision for how to flex that brand through strategic marketing but also driving, you know, business opportunities through that. And really like there were certain cases where it's like, okay, how do I market the brand? How do I get press for the brand? Well, I need to create X, Y, and Z partnerships for that from a strategic marketing perspective. But those marketing partnerships actually had business upside too. Right. So all of it kind of combined into like this, again, this weird mutt of, you know, integrated marketing, business development, and comms. Yeah. 
how aware are you in the moment when you're when you have a gig um of what you want out of it in terms of your next thing or are you just fully in the moment and and living that that like do you have are you one of these people that has an aspirational career plan or are you more opportunistic how do you think about that um the role i'm in honestly i i maybe didn't identify sony in particular um but it was a mm, it was a five-year plan to get to where i'm at an actual plan mm-hmm to be totally honest with you, um, when I went back to Blue Note, I had a vision for what I wanted to do that could help the brand. My dream was to work for a big brand that was well-known in a marketing role. And I was going to create the proof of concept for building that true portfolio that would help that company and also you know, give me the experience and develop my background to get me there. And every deal that I made and every partnership we had during that four-year return at Blue Note from 2016 to 2020, it's kind of leading up to this role. Mm-hmm. And literally, you know, the biggest partnership of that time led me to this job at Sony. And do you have, are you in the midst of another five-year plan now? Like, do you have a vision for what's next or are you like, I'm going to do this for as long as the, the ride lasts? It's a little bit murkier to be totally honest. Um, COVID has complicated that. Um, really enjoying what I'm doing. Not that I didn't before, but I mean, it's a truly unique company. It's a special company. Um, I have a lot of affinity for the company I work for now because it's been a brand that's meant a lot to me at various points over the years. Um, and I mean, to, you know, even within my company, there's so many things going on because it's such a diverse company. You know, we have second largest label in the world. We have one of the largest gaming companies in the world. We have a major studio. (laughs) Uh, We have electronics business. We have B2B businesses. We have, you know, ventures in, you know, the automotive space that are obviously very public. So I'm not saying anything, um, you know, confidential. So, uh, and it's kind of, you know, thrived in, in recent years. And, you know, Sony's been around a long time. And so, I mean, it's, I I honestly don't know for sure what the future will hold. I sometimes think I know. Um, The goal is to be a CMO one day somewhere, whether it's Sony or somewhere else. And I'm still a relatively young guy. Yes, so, you are, you uh, snapper. <laughs> well, so it's a, that's, something that's you just said, though, that that resonates for me is the the not only about the 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 prestige brand, but the age of the company. You know, when I went to Warner Music, um, I never aspired to work at a record label group, um, even though I was around music and technology my whole life. But um but Warner in particular meant a lot to me, like as a music fan and as a music nerd and sort of like, you know, a student, I guess, of the of the modern music business, what Warner meant in terms of artist development and that era where Warner was the place where artists wanted to be. Right. Like they knew that if you signed to Warner, you might have had a 10 year 
run to just get your career up. And they'd let you make five yep. albums or whatever it was. That meant a lot to me. But it also, as somebody who came out of like small companies and startups and things that were bought or consolidated, I look at my resume and it's like, man, there's no evidence of any of the things I did. All those companies are gone, <laughs> yeah. um, bought, merged, whatever. And the idea that I could go somewhere that, you know, if you include Warner Chapel, it's a 200 year old company. Yeah. The idea I could go somewhere and just have a little bit of impact in that bigger mm-hmm. mosaic was really appealing to me. So I, I sort of get that, that impulse to sort of play on that stage and to be part of that canvas. But I would, I would love to, if we could now, pivot a little bit more to the specifics of what you're doing yeah and dig into the technology a little bit yeah um and where i wanted to start was could you tell me a little bit about the genesis of the immersive or spatial audio space in general because for, for me as a as a business person and even as a consumer i wasn't watching it emerge and it seemed like it was just there one day fully formed so yeah. could you talk a little bit about like, what is this space and where did it come from? For sure. It's a great question, right? And we're so in the moment usually that um, the, the genesis can be overlooked. So for context, um, I am an employee of Sony Corporation of America um, in a kind of partner marketing and strategy role to develop brand and business development. Uh, but I work, I mean, basically our, our team in the U.S. is, an extension of the Tokyo sound team. So it's a division within Sony Electronics Corporation that focuses on sound technologies. And for context, this organization, this team, right, um, can be traced back to the Walkman, right? (laughs) Um, And then everything since. So um, when there are new audio formats or standards, right, it's often coming from this team, Minidisc, right? Um, you know, SACD. This team was responsible for SACD. Ah, DAT player. That's true. <laughs> I keep yeah, one on uh, my desk. DAT Walkman. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, so there's a lot of history with this particular part of the company. It's one of the oldest parts of the company, to be honest. Um, and one of the more iconic parts. Um, and... So a lot of the work that was done in the past was around conceiving new ways to experience music, whether it's through hardware or, you know, ways of listening, SACD being one of them. Um, But, you know, the the emphasis at the end of the day was either higher quality, more efficiency, or bringing you closer to the music in some way. And that's taken on different shapes or forms. Um, I guess when you talk about this new product that we are focused on 360 reality audio, I mean, it is an immersive music experience, right? Um, you know, I guess you put it under the spatial audio bucket, spatial audio being kind of a generic term for, you know, uh, feeling or listening to music in space. Um, it's really an outgrowth of other surround formats, right? So if if 5.1 was a standard, right, for surround listening or surround music, uh, this is 5.1 on a lot of steroids mm-hmm. and for the streaming age. 
And I guess what's really interesting about 360 reality audio is, you know, yeah, I mean, other uh, formats have been launched uh, to more or less fanfare from various parties over the years. The very unique circumstance we have now is we're living in a streaming and digital world where um, it's not always device specific, right? So the beauty of 360 compared to maybe some of the prior ventures in, in elements of, you know, sound transformation from a format perspective is, I mean, as long as the content is mixed in 360 and the streaming platform supports 360, you can actually experience 360 with any pair of headphones or any device generally, right? Um, You know, I put an asterisk there because there are certain limitations, but the core, you know, mobile user on a smartphone in any pair of headphones, the content's mixed and the streaming service supports it. You can um, listen to 360 content. And and for context too, 360, um, just to dive in a little bit deeper to what it is, um, you know, we've been listening to music in, in a, a primary format, you know, for mass market for 40 years. And that's stereo, right? Yeah. We went from mono to stereo, right? You know, we, like we just talked about, there were forays into stereo to 5.1, right? Um, wasn't adopted as a mass standard, maybe partially because of uh, device requirements and things like that. Yeah. Um, now we're really going stereo to immersive spatial and 360 is, you know, at the forefront of that. And the music experience puts the listener at the center of a sphere and they're going to hear individual sound objects in various locations of that sphere from a mixing perspective. And it's, it's really created through mixing after a recording is complete. Um, so, and the idea is you really feel like, you're transported. It transports you. It feel you feel like you're with the artist in the studio. There's clarity in a mix. Um, there's a sense of losing yourself in the music in a way that really can't be achieved from a technical perspective with stereo. You might be lost in the music from a creative standpoint, and that's totally great on stereo. But you know, 360, yeah, you can have that kind of creative emotional connection, but also like through the actual technical delivery, you're going to literally feel that in certain cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's there's a couple of things that are interesting in there. And I'm going to say some of it back to you just so it doesn't get lost on our listeners. Sure, please. Um, so in one of our conversations over the last couple of months, um, I was trying to explain uh, the 360 sort of capability to somebody. And, and when I said it to you, you said, oh yes, that's exactly it, which was, I think about it in terms of like good, better, best. And um, there's sort of headphones, good. 360 sort of compatible, like the Sony headphones, or, or I don't know if there's similar headphones, but like headphones that are designed to work with the format better. Um, and then probably out of reach for most people, but the the installation that your team designed um, at the David Bowie pop up location yeah. sort of best like an array of speakers each each sort of spatial component has its own output like that's not gonna that to me actually undermines the opportunity a little bit because mm-hmm. what you said before is the innovation which is 
five one, I can't carry it around with me. Seven one, I yeah. can't carry it around with me. But this experience is really the opportunity in immersive music because it can come with me. And yep. that, that's, that's super exciting. Uh, you know, as a listener, as a business person, um, you know, as a, like I can, I think about albums that I just can't wait to hear in this format. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think about records that sounded so great, even in the stereo sound stage on a great playback system where you could see the, where the music's coming from. Um, but I also, you talked about the mixing component of it. And, you know, a week or so ago, we had, um, you know, we had Tony Visconti in that event we did together. Um, and when I was talking to him offline, I was asking him about the, the mixing process and if he enjoyed it and if he thought it was interesting. Because I really wanted to understand from like a, a technical, you know, Tony's not necessarily an engineer, but he's been in studios for 60 years. Like he's a, he's mm -hmm. a ultimately there's a gearhead component to what yep. he does. And he lit up. And he was like, oh, yeah, he's like, it was incredibly fun. And he described um, what you showed me in the software, the sphere and where you yep. could place things. And he started talking about, you know, I placed David's vocal here and I could bring it into the front and I could put the harmonies here. And and you could see how the tools were not cumbersome limitations he had to get around to make these mixes. They were, It seemed like and I'm you know, clearly I'm not speaking for Tony Visconti. Um, but it seemed like the way he lit up that it was actually fun to work in the environment. Yeah. Um, and I wonder as a, um, as a hardware software development process, like how, do, how did your product team, if you can speak to that, how did your product team get to that? Like, how did they make something that, I mean, you know, I, I open up some digital workstation tools and it's like, Oh God, I have to learn how to do this. Like you have to, you have to, you have to dig into the tool, right? It's like, it's not easy. It's not fun. Um, and you actually don't use all the capabilities because it's like, I just want to do the things I need to do. Please stop adding features. You know, um, could you, do you have any insight into that part of the process? I, I don't, I, I can't say that I, I can't speak to the tangible motivation, but I can speculate in a way that I think the team would agree and support. At the end of the day, we're working with creators. This is supposed to be a creative opportunity, creative venture. Yeah, I mean, there's a business element. But at the end of the day, if 360 mixes are done by engineers, those engineers are creatives themselves, right? And we're working with music. That's creative too. Um, and with more canvas to mix in a sphere, there's more creative options as well. So when you're, I guess... When we think about this holistically from a motivation perspective in terms of ease of use for a creator, right? It, it's really to that point, you know, it's a creative tool more than anything else. So when you think about the essence of what it takes to create a great 360 mix or a 360 mix in general, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of tacticals that go into the software and, you know, other elements to optimize a mix. But I mean, in essence, not to oversimplify, you're taking sound objects, right? Because it's object-based audio. You're placing them in different locations of a sphere, right? Uh, in which the listener is at the center. And when you think about that mixing process 
from a visual representation standpoint, it's actually fairly simple, right? So when you take into account like what our value proposition is to the, to the creative creator community, the music industry, and like what this format's all about, it doesn't need to be complicated. Yeah, yeah there, there are other elements that, you know, I, again, I can't um, oversimplify because, um, you know, it's still a plugin tool. It's still software, right? And, you know, nothing operates seamlessly ever. Not to say that there are bugs, but I mean, you'll have that with any computer program you're running where Outlook crashes or Teams crashes or, right? But but in essence, like the actual core of a mixing experience, right? It doesn't need to be complicated. And, you know, we want it to be accessible and turnkey so that creators can actually focus on creation. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, one of the things that struck me about Tony's comments was he said, you know, well, let me back up. One of the things that struck me overall is how fast sort of the output came together for a lot of the, um, a lot of the content. Um, and so just to provide a, you know, 15 seconds of context for our listeners, um, you and I were, have recently worked on a project where, um, a big chunk of David Bowie's later career catalog, last 20 years worth of albums um, were mixed in Sony 360 reality audio um, overseen by the original producer of the albums, Tony Visconti. So with that said, now people know what the hell we're talking about. Um, exactly. You know, and it happened very quickly. And one of the things that Tony related was that the time spent assembling the stems made the mixing go much faster. And then after exploring that a little bit with them, what occurred to me was it really benefits from having, it's not just anybody mixing the albums, it's somebody familiar with the content. Because to your point, because you have this broader palette, if, you, if you're familiar with the music and you're familiar with the source material, it's very easy to have a vision for where it all should go. And um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of intuitive in a way like, oh yeah, of course I want this vocal right in my face and I want these other things there. And it's, it's almost like it's fulfilling things that a mixer or a producer, it's probably how they heard the music when they were doing the initial mix, they were just stuck in a flat environment. So it's, it's yeah. really interesting in that regard. I wonder, could you talk a little bit about, um, and I don't mean in a proprietary way, but mm -hmm. what's the... Um, What's the future for these formats? Like you're, you know, it's very much music focused now. Um, but, you know, I could see a world where like, it would be super fun to do podcasts this way, especially if you had like a panel of people and, or does this, uh, does this have theatrical applications or will I go into a music venue someday and experience a concert in this format? Like where, how big is the canvas that, that this, that this, capability can exist on it's a great question um so we right now are very committed to the music industry um we're deep in music we've worked with tons of creators we're working with labels streaming services um and and music is a key focus i'd say an evolution that i can definitely speak to uh in this podcast is our work with live audio and video content. Uh, so from a streaming service perspective, yes, um, you know, today 
<laughs> we're we're talking on January twenty first. You know, five David Bowie catalog albums have been released in three hundred and sixty Brownwood Audio today on streaming services. Yes, congratulations, thank you. Same to you. <laughs> um, fr- from a str- an audio streaming perspective, but uh, it doesn't just stop at audio. So, for example, as you know, in in our wonderful um, collaboration on Bowie seventy five in these pop up locations. We were screening um, audio video content in 360 reality audio of uh, a reality tour live, right? David Bowie, 2004. Um, And during our CES activity, Consumer Electronics Show, biggest consumer electronics conference uh, in the world, takes place at the top of January. Um, We did a digital activation with the Bowie team. And on live streaming, that some of that same content, uh, concert footage uh, through YouTube, right? Uh, audio video. So, I mean, I can t- I can definitely tangibly speak to uh, the application for audio video content. Um, we we've had pre recorded. There's certain activities we've done with various artists from a VOD video on demand perspective, and we demonstrated the live stream capability of a, a playback in real time through YouTube as well um, with simulated 360 reality audio. Um, so, I mean, that's an initial natural evolution yeah. that is definitely of interest to us and um, artists are interested as well. Um, beyond that, I mean, the sky's the limit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, is there a true live application or, um, you know, I, I think of an experience like walking through a, an exhibition and they often yep. give you the headphones. Um, that's simply, that's just an engineering choice, right? That's not real. At this point, you've unleashed the technology. If I'm, if I'm a creator making an audio product and I choose to mix it that way, that's just an application of an existing technology, right? You don't need to do anything new because it's not hardware-based. Yes, I guess it depends on the experience overall, right? So for example, are you is that creative experience looking to have a, a call and response or dynamic, you know, versus just pre-recorded playback, right? Uh, that's one piece of it. Um, are they trying to do live live, true live live? Um, what's the delivery mechanism? You know, there, there are a lot of factors that need to come into play. But in essence, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, one great example, right? Uh, you probably don't even know this. I haven't shared, um, you know, I'm at Sony out. Hall. <laughs> what? I said you're holding <laughs> it, out. <laughs> it, yeah, 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 a little bit. Um we, we are doing something very interesting uh, at Sony Hall. So Sony Hall is a branded music venue um, that is owned and operated by Blue Note Entertainment Group, my old company, um, in Times Square. And it's a, you know, sponsorship partnership with Sony Corporation, our, you know, parent company from the brand marketing team. And there's actually an activation coming up this spring uh, 2022 of me- guided meditation in 360 reality audio mm. at Sony Hall because Sony Hall actually 
supports 360 reality audio playback from their house system, not just headphones. They have speakers that are configured to playback 360 content. So we actually, we didn't, but um, one of the internal organizations within Sony actually uh, worked with Blue Note to identify, um, you know, an artist who has this kind of unique yoga and meditation experience. And they mixed that content in 360 and it will be a 360 reality audio meditation experience, Very which cool. is cool. And so yeah. like, I mean that, you know, you can draw your own conclusions in terms of, you know, where the applications might be, but that's another perfect example. I mean, we haven't done that every day. It's not a traditional music activation or experience or piece of content. Um, but I guess, you know, to your point, I mean, this is public knowledge too. I mean, you could Google this activation. Um, we're starting to see certain creators have visions in mind, Yeah, you know, for usage. Yep. Yep. I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. Well, listen, um, we're nearing the end of our time, yes. but what I would like to ask is that maybe, uh, maybe we throw the stone down the road and get back together in a few months or uh, later this year and see what the state is of this yeah. technology and the deployment and the adoption and what's next in the roadmap as you start to unveil things. Um, Cause like I said, it was a space that was a little bit of a blind spot to me, but now that I'm, I'm going to use the pun dude. Now that I'm immersed in it, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I find it so intriguing so I'd love to just stay in touch and check in with you later and see, yeah. uh, see what's going on. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much. Should we cover everything yeah. you needed to cover? I, I think so. Good. I, I think so. This is good. Um, I, what do you think? Are you, how do you feel about everything? I, I know good. I spent like half the time in therapy session talking about my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we do here though. I mean, like the meta theme of this podcast is, um, people who make their living in the creative fields who aren't just necessarily on that side of the screen or the stage or the yeah. microphone, because there's lots yeah. of ways to have a career and a livelihood in entertainment and the arts. So yeah. um, I think we covered, we covered both bases. Yeah. Um, so, I think so thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jordy Freed and the entire team at Sony 360 reality audio. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.